Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 689 of the podcast and it is Friday the 28th of April 2023 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Kevin Kelly about his new book, Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. Now, I am a super fan girl of Kevin, so it's one of those interviews where you're going to hear awe and respect in my voice. Kevin wrote an iconic blog post, A Thousand True Fans, back in March 2008, just as I started out in my author career. And it reverberated around the community then and still echoes today, perhaps even more strongly. The premise being that you don't need to hit the bestseller lists or be famous to have a creative career career that sustains you. If you can attract a thousand true fans, you can make a living. Kevin started Wired Magazine, which is one of my go-to technology positive resources. And later, his book, The Inevitable, which I still highly recommend, helped me consider AI and the future of how things will turn out. And so I was thrilled to interview him about his new book. We talk about how curiosity drives all Kevin's varied creative projects, how art emerges from our broken selves, how travel expands possibilities, how to avoid seeking the approval of others, and reasons to be excited about generative AI. Now, also, I should say that the reason I got this interview, and if you don't know Kevin, he is pretty famous. Uh, He was on the Tim Ferriss podcast this week. I mean, he's doing the rounds of the big podcast. So I was kind of thrilled. But he put out on Twitter, he put a tweet saying, I'm interested in being on podcasts. Let me know. You can apply here. And so I applied and he said yes. So that was very exciting. So just a tip there for keep an eye on the people you would like to interview or you would like to get to know, have a look at their Twitter stream or whatever chosen social media it is, and you may find chances to connect with them. One of Kevin's quotes I particularly love is, over the long term, the future is decided by optimists. And I am certainly one of those and I try and stay on the optimistic side of the industry. So it was fantastic to talk to Kevin. That's coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, well, BookBub this week blogged about the state of author newsletters with some useful tips, so I thought I would go through some of those today. Through the ups and downs of social media and the emergence of even more technological options, email has remained a constant for authors and creative businesses. So I started building my email list as soon as I built my first website back in 2008, and I know a few of you have been around since then. I've used four different services over the last 12 years, indicating that yes, you can change services over time as things change, and I'm happy with ConvertKit right now as my main author website list. Interesting stats in the article. So first of all, how often should you send an email? This often comes up. 41% only email once a month. So 41% once a month, which is a relief because to be honest, as JF Pen, I email once a month, sometimes even less. 26% email two to three times a month, which is what I do for the Creative Pen email list if you've signed up for my blueprint. So again, that's uh, over... Yeah, I mean, most people don't email that much, uh, which is great news. (laughs) But yeah, it does have to be more often than just like once a year. Only 2% only email when they release a new book. So what about what you put inside your newsletters? Because again, that is a really common question. So 92% share updates about their new books, and I certainly do that too. 70% include cover reveals. Now, I hardly ever do that, so that's a tip. 65% recommend other authors' books, which I absolutely do for my fiction list. And obviously for nonfiction, this podcast uh, always gives you more books for your list. 
62% do sneak peeks or excerpts from books, which I also never do, so that's interesting. 56% do giveaways. 51% do discounts on their backlist. And I'm doing more of this now as I have control of even the print side through creativepenbooks.com. 49% share behind the scenes and personal information about the writing process. And a couple of other things, 29% share pictures of their pets. I absolutely do this now with Cashew and Noise or British short hair cats. There's some other things there which you can read about. In terms of gaining new subscribers, so again, this is a common question, how do I build my list? 75% use links in the back of their books and that has certainly been my primary method. 69% use links on social media and again, I do that. Also links in the podcast intro and outro, for example. 56% use giveaways of free books and I certainly do that. 50 56% also through organic web traffic. And then I wanted to also, there's loads more, but 21% through advertising. So pretty much only a fifth of those authors use advertising to grow their list. And basically, I've hardly ever used my list. I did a little bit of playing with it years ago, but I have basically grown my email lists through the method of content marketing. So things like this podcast, free books, and also links at the back of all my books. So in terms of how big the email lists are, 30% under 500 people, so so that should hopefully encourage people, and 33% between 1,000 and 5,000. And in total, 79% of people had under 5,000 people on their list. So wherever you are, if your list is small, it can grow. And only 2% had lists of over 50,000 people. So they also share some anonymous quotes from authors. I liked this one in particular. I have a newsletter so I can control my communication with readers. Like my website, it is a space I own where I am not subject to the vagaries of another entity, or at least not completely. Social media is great, but the algorithms are constantly changing and you can't control your exposure. Also, if your social media account is hacked or frozen and you don't have a newsletter as backup, you're starting completely from scratch. And I'll always remember meeting one uh, traditionally published author whose books I used to read decades ago and I loved his books and he, his publisher had kind of passed on his next book and he, I was talking to him at an event, he said, I don't know what to do, I don't have an email list, I'm basically starting again. And this was after decades of a very successful career. So um, it's definitely something that you need whether you're traditionally published or going indie. Because then, yeah, you have control in the future. Whatever happens to the platforms or whatever technology it is, you will be able to contact people. So hopefully that gave you some ideas for what to put in your email newsletter. And I also wanted to share an encouraging story this week as everyone starts somewhere. A thriller author, Mark Dawson, shared a long thread on Twitter about his journey as an author. You'll most likely know Mark from the Self-Publishing Formula podcast, friend of the show, been on here many times, and also Mark's courses like Ads for Authors. But Mark is a fiction author first, and like all of us, started with nothing. So I'll read a few things from the thread, but go and check it out as it's a great example of more than 20 years on the roller coaster author life. So Mark says in the tweet, tweet thread, it's like a long blog post, basically. I was first published in 2000. I'd always wanted to be an author and I thought this was the start of something special. I worked with great people and had a blast. I went to literary parties. I drank a lot of red wine. I told myself I'd quit law and write. And he shares some of the book covers along the way. And that that first book, the cover was truly terrible. (laughs) I'm saying that Mark didn't say that, but I mean, his covers are now excellent. But uh, uh, back to his Twitter thread, he says, but I'd written a poor book. It didn't sell. And despite trying with another, Subpina Colada, great title, also poor, I gave up hope of following my dream and suitably chastened, went back to law. I didn't write for five or six years and it was only when Amazon KDP released the Kindle, making it possible for authors to reach readers directly, that I tried again. I had a better book this time and a plan. I taught myself everything I needed to know about how to get my writing into the hands of readers who I knew would like it. And the book covers started to get much better. Sales started to happen. I got a check from Amazon, inverting our usual relationship. I got my first review from someone I didn't know. 
I had a reader join my mailing list. This was revolutionary. I started the John Milton series and things really started to take off. I earned as much money as I was making in my day job and then more than that. Soon I was making quite a lot more and my wife, on maternity leave at the time, told me I should quit and write full time. So I did. In the decade since I first published, I've sold over six million books. Congratulations, Mark. That's awesome. I publish most myself, but I have deals with wonderful partners all around the world. And Mark lists the various uh, companies he works with. And he you know, definitely is a hybrid author, as we say these days, where you license some books and you self-publish others. And uh, that's kind of the way to have a successful career in many ways now. He also mentions bumps along the way, which we all have for sure. He says, Welbeck Publishing handled my print and the incredible their te- the incredible team there put the first book in my Atticus Priest series up for a slot on the Richard and Judy Book Club for summer 2023. Now, if you're not in the UK, you wouldn't know, but this is a very popular book club, traditionally published authors only, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Maybe similar to the sort of Reese Witherspoon one in the US. And it usually results in much success for authors who are included. They only take a a few books and they give them lots of promotion. Richard and Judy is like a a TV show, but they have associated press and media and all that kind of thing. Mark says, I found out a couple of months ago they liked Atticus and wanted to include him. And Mark shares a picture of a billboard with the house in the woods on, which is the first in the Atticus pre-series, which uh, and Mark says he thinks it's the first book that was originally Uh, independently published to be honoured with inclusion on the list. So it'd be interesting to know if that is true. I think it is too. I mean, usually it is traditionally published authors only. And this is a traditionally published reissue of a book that Mark put out himself. Now, Mark says of the writing life, it's not easy. Nothing worthwhile ever is, but it's never been easier. And new opportunities open up every day. So I wanted to share that uh, because I've been friends with Mark for like over a decade now and he's been on the show. Obviously, I've taken his wonderful courses and I really just am very happy. (laughs) It's it's kind of weird to say I'm proud, but it is. I'm proud to see another indie author doing so well and uh, for continuing to push forward the acceptance of indie authors. And I look forward to Mark making the Sunday Times bestseller list with this book or maybe another one or maybe every single one in the future. This type of promotion does tend to lead to that kind of thing. I will be at uh, self-publishing show live in June in London. I won't be speaking this year. I uh, just want to attend and learn and network, but I intend to be on the dance floor having a boogie. So if you're going to Mark's, uh, Mark and James and the team self-publishing show live, I'll be there. I have also, I wanted to say, I've booked my flights for 20 Books Vegas as I am really determined to be there this November. 2023 feels like a pivotal year. It feels, I've said this before, I'll say it again, it feels like 2007, 2008 at the beginning of the digital wave of what drove this first generation really of digitally publishing authors. And because of generative AI this time, I feel like it's the beginning of this new creative flourishing and new possibilities. And so and being there at the beginning, back in 2007, I remember those early days and it was it was there was so much energy amongst the people who were interested in this kind of thing. So I really want to be part of that. And so, yeah, I will be I fully intend to be uh, at 20 Books Vegas. If you want to hear more about 20 Books Seville and also the London Book Fair, have a listen to the Ask Ally podcast this week as Orna Ross and I discuss both events and what we learned and discovered, as well as why these in-person events can be tiring, but well worth the investment in time and energy. So I'm not going to talk too much about uh, AI this week. Uh, as I've got quite a lot coming. And if you stay, I don't know if you knew this, but if you stay till the end of the interview, I always get a bit of a heads up as to what's coming. So I'll talk about what's coming after the interview. But I did want to mention that Jane Friedman reports in the Hot Sheet newsletter this week, HarperCollins testing AI generated content. So those people who were like, oh, this is unacceptable. Well, HarperCollins is now doing this. Speaking at London Book Fair last week, HarperCollins CEO Brian Murray said the publisher is experimenting with generative AI for translated and illustrated book projects. 
One test case in particular is adapting Harlequin content for the Japanese manga market with AI-generated art based on photographs. You can, you can much more quickly create translation or images to help your books to market more efficiently, he said. HarperCollins is also using AI to generate first drafts of marketing copy, manuscript summaries, and metadata for retailers. So it's interesting. Many, many times I have said, imagine if there was a publisher with quite a lot of data that was in a similar niche. What could they do with it? And I have always had one particular brand in mind, and that is indeed Harlequin. So uh, this is interesting. So perhaps that will encourage some of you to try things out. And of course, this type of thing is shifting every single day. Microsoft just launched Designer, and which might be a Canva killer. You never know. Um, but Microsoft Designer has, is, uh, has got some incredible AI going on. Um, my book cover designer is in the um, beta list for Firefly with Adobe Photoshop. So the, the, all these things are starting to emerge now. In my personal update, I have a little bit more on AI. I have been working on the AI-assisted artisan author, which I think we're going to call A4 for short, uh, which is essentially where I'm trying to position us in a way that will help things, uh, help people identify with still playing with the tools, but equally not necessarily being a sort of mass output style um, generation. So I will be talking about that, but I'm really trying to get this right. So I've done a lot of work on that. I've also circled back to Catacomb and I've been starting to get back into walking. Now the weather's getting better here in the UK. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments. Thanks in particular to everyone who sent me their thoughts and tips about energy management at events. Way too many to mention because I had 19 <laughs> emails, which are with some of which were really, really long. So I really appreciate those tips. I might try and put them all into one article or something to share as this seems like a common thing. However, I did want to share an interesting fact. All the emails were from women. And as this, my listenership here and my community in general was pretty much split 50-50 uh, by gender, um, I would love to hear from any introverted men who struggle with energy management at events. This can't just be a female thing. I, I Well, maybe it is, but I don't think it is. So if I'd be very interested, because if I'm going to do a, a post about it, I would like to share as many perspectives as possible. So yes, you can always email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. A few comments. Royston Stone on YouTube said about Halima's interview on PR. Joanna mentioned imposter syndrome. I'm sure this is what stops most of us from hitting the send button on emails to bloggers and journalists who might actually be interested in our story behind the story. As always, another down-to-earth, enjoyable podcast with actionable advice. Thanks, Royston. And also on YouTube now, they have rolled out their podcast, audio-only podcast features. So maybe many of you are now listening on YouTube, but that's also going to be on YouTube music and all of that kind of thing. So yes, you can subscribe to this podcast on YouTube. It is mostly audio-only. Thanks also to Michelle, who sent a selfie listening to the podcast on a flight from San Francisco to Salt Lake City with clouds outside and her, her smiling face. When I feel overwhelmed fairly often, like no way can I start a publishing company because there are just too many things to do in life and not enough time to do them. Listening to your podcast brings me back to the realm of, well, maybe it's possible if I just keep taking the next step forward. Yep totally true. And I have the same thing. I mean, I'm still going through like learning more and more about Shopify and how to do e-commerce. <laughs> it's like a whole different thing. Like we've spent so long directing traffic to big retailers that it's a really big shift to think about sending people to our own stores and having this sort of e-commerce attitude um, and picking up different uh, tips around that. But it is about, as you say, taking the next step forward. And then thanks to Julia, who sent me pictures from an unexpected cemetery from the 1800s, nestled into an old wooded area. Several gravestones are in disrepair, but someone has cared enough about their ancestors to add a modern marker. And that is the Bruce Cemetery near Windsor 
I-L, so I think that might be Illinois. I always love to see pictures of graveyards. Thank you very much. You can tweet me at The Creative Pen or leave a comment on the show notes or the YouTube channel or email me, Joanna, at thecreativepen.com. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's episode is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, because however you choose to publish, whether you go direct to readers or you go indie or you want a traditional deal, you need to make your book the best it can be. And actually, I should add to that, however you want to write, whether you want to co-write with AI writing tools or you want to hand scribble yourself and then type it up or type it or dictate it or however you choose to create your first draft, you will need to self-edit and self-editing line line edits can be much more useful with ProWritingAid. So I use ProWritingAid multiple times in my process, once after the full draft is finished, before I print it for hand edits. And in fact, I even the AI-assisted artisan author episode, and I've written like 15 pages. <laughs> no, and I'm not joking. I am now going through that with ProWritingAid. So I do it with any longer form written work. And then I uh, will work with my editor for the, the a book or a short story, and then I'll use it again before publishing as a final check, because if you get uh, things back from editors and then you change them, you can often screw up something else. So I always use it again. So why use software to help you? Why don't you just learn all the grammar and writing rules and apply them yourself? Well, we all use tools to improve our process, and we are also often blind to our writing issues. It helps to have another pair of eyes, even if the eyes are software. ProWritingAid knows all the rules and helps you apply them. And now, it, as I discussed with Chris on a previous episode, they now have tools that help you actually fix them and will teach you how to fix them as you do them. It helps with making your writing more active, finding repeated words, finding words you could improve, sentence structure, grammar, punctuation, as well as the basics of typos, spacing and more. It integrates with all the usual word processing tools and importantly for many of us, including me, it integrates with Scrivener and that's how I use it. And also I, I, I was using it with Microsoft Word for this article. I open ProWritingAid on my computer, then open the Scrivener project and work through each chapter. I learn every time and it has loads of reports to help improve your writing. So won't a human editor do all this? Well, yes, they can do, but I'd rather pay my editor to fix the things the software can't. As brilliant as ProWritingAid is, it can't read your manuscript as a whole, comment on the bigger issues like character development, inconsistencies, plot holes. So I use ProWritingAid as my essential editing tool and still work with a human editor. Kristen, who's been on the show. You can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link, prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna. That's prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time is sponsored by my patrons and they especially support the in-between episodes that I've been doing, including this very big and time-intensive AI-assisted artisan author, which will be coming soon. Thank you to new and returning patrons this week, Doug Fleener, Suzette Welling, Suzanne Grosser, Bill Graham, Mike Reynolds, Larisha Matuska and sitcom geeks. And thanks to all the patrons who've been supporting the show for months and years. You help me keep going with this show. And as we head towards episode 700, <laughs> that is a big feat. So if you find value in this podcast, you can support the show for a few dollars or pounds or euros or whatever currency a month, uh, less than a coffee a month, or you can always support with a couple of coffees if you're feeling generous. And I do extra monthly Q&A audios, which uh, just sent out last week for the patrons. And you can also get the entire backlist. So you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right. Let's get into the interview. Kevin Kelly is the New York Times bestselling author of multiple books, including The Inevitable, Cool Tools and Vanishing Asia, as well as being a technologist, senior maverick at Wired Magazine and co-chair of the Long Now Foundation. His latest book is Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. So welcome to the show, Kevin. Oh, I'm really delighted to be here. I really appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. 
Oh, no, I'm excited. And there is indeed a lot of excellent advice in the book. So I've pulled out some particular quotes for writers to explore further. And the first is, draw to discover what you see, write to discover what you think. So what part has visual art and writing played in your life? And how do you balance creation with consumption? That's a great question. I, for some reason, have been a maker, which is what we call it now, all my life. I didn't call it that. When I was growing up, I was just a kid who liked to make things and not just little things, but larger things. So I made a train, model train layout and plywood with, you know, a little city and lights and things when I was probably 10-ish and maybe. And then I went on to make a nature museum when I was 12. I found a book the library about how to make a nature museum. And I was doing collections and making exhibits. And I went on to make other things like that. I don't know. I was just something in me that wanted to make stuff. And I got into art as a kid. And I almost went to art school after high school, which I should have done, but I didn't. <laughs> so it's always been a part of how I see things. And I eventually kind of gravitated to photography because it was a combination of my other love, which was science. So it's kind of technical and art at the same time. When I started, you had to do the chemistry and go into the dark room and do the magic chemistry. And so it was very technical. And that was very much a part of me. But I would go out to photograph to see. I mean, I, there was something about doing the art that enabled me to see things and partly it was an excuse to see it. And partly it was that act of trying to look and see. And then when I was drawing, I realized that most of the effort was actually to see the thing. It wasn't the hand. It was your eye trying to see something and then you could transfer it to your hand. And later on, when I started to write, it was the same thing. I don't, have an idea, and then I try to express it, it's quite the opposite. I don't even know what I'm thinking. I don't know what my idea is until I try and write something. And that act of writing it kind of puts the idea into my head. It's very weird. It's it's sort of like I try to think what I know, and I realize I don't know, and I try to get somewhere where I can explain it. And that act of trying to write actually creates the idea. So that's what I meant by that. Mm, well, we call that discovery writing. And okay. um, yeah, that's what we call I'm it. So, a writer. Okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, some people in the writing community call them pantsers. And that is a very American word, obviously, because, you know, in England, pants is underwear. But so we kind of adopt the word uh, discovery writer because, you know, that's better than pants. <laughs> Why don't get the pants reference? What? what how oh, get- um, writing by the seat of your pants. Ah, okay. All right. There, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I think discovery writing is more apt, and and that is definitely my style of writing. I don't write as much fiction, but I would even imagine I probably do the same when I write fiction. Oh, good. And then it's interesting because you talk there about almost changing your process over the years and changing the way you see and that you learn to write by writing and figure out what you think. But I I wondered how your writing process in particular has changed over the years, because you've written some very different types of books, (laughs) like The Inevitable. I've got it here in, in hardback and I quote it often is this sort of quite it's about technology. It's about art as well, but it is mainly about technology. And then Vanishing Asia, of course, is a photo book. And I wondered how has your writing process changed and how do you decide on what book to write next because they're so diverse yes you're absolutely correct the vanishing asia book which you mentioned does have nine thousand captions there are some words and even though there are nine thousand images as well but that was a matter of you know it's labeling rather than creative writing although i had to condense some a lot of information about a picture into a few words i tend to write telegraphic and as I've gone on, become more important to me. And that's one of the things happening with this excellent advice book, which was me trying to make it as telegraphic as possible. I somehow enjoy that process of trying to distill something down to as few possible words. I don't know whether that was my background in editing. I'm a more natural editor than a writer. Let me put it that way. My, my natural tendencies is to edit I'm comfortable editing. I am just 
in pain trying to write that first draft <laughs> and it's just excruciating. And I work with writers. So I work with writers who love to write. I don't love to write. I love to have written. And so I'm much more comfortable in that kind of distilling something down and removing words rather than adding words or making up words. Mm. What's well, interesting. Yeah, so is- over time, I'm not sure how I would say it's changed. As I said, maybe one is that kind of appreciating the distillation process. It's a piece of advice which I put into the book, which is this idea that all professional writers get to where you have to generate lots of bad stuff, first drafts that you're going to throw away, but know that. And I didn't know that in the beginning. I didn't realize that you would do that. That seemed kind of like a waste or a failure or something that you would generate stuff that you would throw away, knowing that you're going to throw it away. I mean, that's the difference. And so now I I understand that I'm just going to write a whole bunch of stuff that I'm just never going to use. And that's sort of the point of it. That's That took me a long time to understand that. And that's true for anything I make now. I just assume I'm going to get there by making prototypes, going to make different versions of it as I go along knowing that I'm not going to save the initial ones, that I'm not going to hold on to them. That that changed over time where I understood that. And it became, a, so, so it's a process, much more of a process now rather than about the artifact. And with your photography, because, I mean, you started taking pictures in Asia uh, decades ago when digital photography was not mm-hmm. as it is now. So now you can take millions of photos and then spend the time editing. But originally you would have had to take fewer photos, I yes. guess. So is yes. that maybe part of why your process has changed? Because you do have this abundance. And I mean, that must mm-hmm. make editing also a lot harder. It, you're absolutely right. So when I started off 50 years ago, 1972, photographing in Taiwan, Japan, and I had a precious rolls of film, which had 36 exposures in, in a roll. And the cost of that developing and buying the film in today's dollars is about $5. So imagine each time you clicked your camera phone, it was $5. That, that really <laughs> tends to focus what you're going to shoot at. And so that habit of really trying to sort of edit in the camera, they were calling it, where you spent much more time uh, thinking and moving about and pretending you're photographed, but not actually photographing, that it kind of slows you down. And that habit has still, you know, still maintain. I still maintained even as it went to digital of trying not to take a lot of really trying to this decisive moment idea of like waiting for the right moment and then, taking as few as possible. I'm not the auto motor. There's a motor driven uh, mode in a lot of cameras where you just, <laughs> and, and, and then later on you pick out the one that you like. I'm still much more of a trying to time it myself, kind of like as if it was film. Hmm. So I think it's true that model of trying to minimize the things and trying to edit in the camera as much as possible is an old school version. There's really no reason not to take a lot of pictures. They're all free. But to me, there's a different joy in it. And then just staying on Asia, because another quote from the book says, expand your mind by thinking with your feet on a walk or with your hand in a notebook. Think outside your brain, which I really love. So how have your travels in Asia in particular, being so many different cultures, helped you think outside your brain? How has Asia changed you? Well, the way that Asia has changed me, I mean, it's just so immense. It would be an entire book in itself because I went to Asia from when I was very, very young. I was 20. And... I had never been outside of New Jersey, New York, and Massachusetts. And in the 70s, early 70s, when I, and 60s when I was growing up, it was a very, very, very different world, a very different America. And I had never eaten Chinese food in my life. I had never held chopsticks in my life. I just, it was, uh, it was a very parochial world. And so going and winding up in Taiwan in 1972, it was it blew my mind. It just was so utterly different from anything I experienced in suburban New Jersey. And there was an openness, meaning that 
everybody was working out on the streets. So everything was visible. Their sense of privacy was very different. You could kind of walk into anything without any objection or people would be welcoming everything. People did things differently. It was just mind bogglingly different for me. And that was the beginning of it. And I just kind of went on to most of the Asian countries from there photographing, but also learning. It was, I, I mean, after I was done, I awarded myself an honorary degree in Asian studies because there was so much and the diversity within Asia is much greater than even from any Asian country to America, really. It's this huge for Turkey to Japan, Siberia in the north, down to Indonesia. It's just vast. And so I learned from those things, primarily this idea of the benefit of otherness, of, of having differences, of thinking different and having a different way of doing things, because we are now in a world where we're connected all the time with each other, 24 hours a day, and yet the engine of all the innovation and even wealth is coming from being able to think different. And it's harder to think different when we're connected together, and I find that traveling, it being physical, having those hurdles that your body has and um, being outside of your head and actually immersed in the world and using your hands to do things, it, it ignites different ideas. It ignites ideas that you can't get just by thinking about things. This is one of the reasons why I preach embracing technologies is because we can think about what these technologies are going to do, but we have to use them and do them in order to actually see what they're good for and not what they're not good for. So, so engaging in the physical world is the ultimate trip and it's the ultimate way to make something happen. And it's the ultimate way to learn and to understand what's happening. So I, I think the value of travel, we should subsidize it to the youth. It's so, so valuable. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have another podcast called Books and Travel, and it's definitely one of my obsessions. And I was wondering whether you have, is this something I struggle with, which is being at home in that when I'm home, I am always planning my next trip. <laughs> and so whether Wanderlust is just part of us as a character, our innate, and, and that's just from curiosity, or whether you think you'll ever stop traveling and have you found home or is your home just everywhere? Well, I was shocked, utterly shocked by COVID because for two and a half years, I did not travel anywhere. And I was, I mean, I was rolling stone until that point. And here's the shocking thing was, is I did not miss it at all. It was like, I'm perfect. If I never got on a plane again, I'm perfectly happy. It was so weird because I would not have ever predicted that. And I haven't actually gotten back to the level of wanderlust. And so I, I, it turned out that I was, I was happy not traveling. I didn't hate it. It wasn't that I was burned out. It was just like, oh, okay, well, can't travel. That's all right. We'll do stuff. We'll make stuff at home. And so that was something surprising that I did not know about myself, which was that I was going to be happy not traveling. I've picked up again a little bit, but not as much as anywhere near what I was doing. And it's been fine. So I don't know what that says. Um, I'm not as, you know, as obsessed with finding these little corners of the world that are special. Um, maybe figuring that I've done a lot of that. It's okay. And now I'm now kind of doing other things. So for me, that was a surprise for myself. Hmm. Was that the time you were doing the Vanishing Asia books? Yes. Yeah. So maybe that you were kind yeah. of virtually traveling every day because that was such a huge project. Yes. Yeah. I had a half million images that I was going through and editing <laughs> and I did the layout and design for all 1080 pages, each one. And each page has a different design and I had a color process or, you know, basically touch up every single one of those 9,000 images. Yeah. There was a huge amount of work. And so, yeah, I could have been satisfied. My, my wonderlust could have been satisfied by reviewing all these images, some of which were taken almost 50 years ago. So that could have been a large part of it. Mm, it's interesting. And then I wanted to ask uh, another quote that I really liked was, only imperfect beings can mm. make art because yeah. art begins in what is broken. And that, that really made me stop and think. So how has being broken impacted your art? 
yeah, as I said, like, um, superheroes and saints don't really make, you know, Mother Teresa, Jesus, they were doing art because there was nothing to complete. So it's our incompleteness. It's our kind of search for things, this yearning to, um, to restore something in some ways that I think is this fundamental thing of making the art, the expression, the sort of what, what, what my definition of art, there's lots of definitions, but mine's cool and useless. It's things that we make, but that really aren't practical in that first order sense. They're kind of existing because, just because. And that that sense of, they're for us. The prime audience is ourselves. And so there's a question that we have that we're kind of answering. And we may not even know what the question is, but we're making an answers to it. And so if you don't have questions <laughs> to yourself, if you're perfect, you don't have questions about yourself. And so these the art is kind of a way of trying to answer a question. You're not even sure what it is. And for me, that's what it is. It's kind of my inner self talking to my conscious self or making itself conscious and aware. And so there's a lot of subterranean work going on because I'm imperfect. And I see the same in other people as well. Mm. Well, it's interesting. You say subterranean. I mean, do we even know what it is that is no. broken in ourselves no. when we no. make our art? We often don't know. I, I, my, my basic stance is that we are totally opaque to ourselves. This is that we're just really, we're opaque to ourselves. We don't have great access to our own inner, how our minds work and why our minds work. And some people use dreams and other things to try and access that or therapy and art is certainly in that same category. And we use other people around us to help us understand ourselves. But I mean, even on a kind of a scientific level, we don't understand how we work very well. We don't understand how our minds actually work. And so this is another tool in trying to access our inner workings and what makes us tick. And if we're lucky, maybe by the end of our life, we have a slightly better idea than <laughs> when we began. Yeah, hopefully. Well, it's funny because there's kind of an obsession in the writing community about finding your author voice. Yeah. And from what you're saying there, it's potentially we might never really find it, but that it might emerge. Well, so I have some other advice in the book about the kind of the journey, which I think is the last piece and close to last piece, which is like basically your goal is to be able to say on the day before you die that you fully become yourself. And so we want to kind of like become all that we can be we want to become what it's possible what we're kind of arranged to be all the talents and geniuses that we have which everybody's different like we have a different face we have a little slightly different arrangement of things and for me my goal has been to try and um, another piece of advice in the book not be the best but be the only and that of kind of coming to where you are doing something that only you can do and that's a very high bar it's a very high bar because it requires some kind of self-knowledge and knowing what you are better at than most people or any other people. And for most of us, that will take all our lives. It will take all our lives to get to the point where we have a grasp of what it is that we do much better, if not better than anybody. And there may be some people who are prodigies who very early in their life can see and know themselves well enough that they they know what it is that they can do better than anybody else. But most of us, it's going to take a long time. So it's a process. So it's never done. That's another piece of advice. Like basically you're getting lessons all your life. And if you're still alive, you're, there's another lesson to come. And so I don't see our lives having destinations I see these as journeys and we're always going to be working on it. And if you're alive, you're still trying to become yourself. And so it's a direction. I think that that's one of the reasons why I say, and another piece of advice from the book is that it kind of doesn't, when you're starting out, it doesn't really matter where you start, particularly for young people. Don't get too hung up on your first job or your major or anything, because it's very, very, very rare that anybody 
stops or ends up where they started. Most of the remarkable lives that you would admire, people that you might respect, heroes that you have, they started somewhere way, way, way far from where they from where they are. And any remarkable person's life is just this meandering full of detours and setbacks and sharp turns. And so it doesn't really matter where you begin as long as you're kind of going in a direction and making progress in the sense of becoming more of who you are. And so that's my advice to young people is just master something. You've got to master something. That's the platform. But it doesn't really matter too much where you start. And it's interesting, again, looking at everything you've created as a maker and the things you've started, in many ways, they're not related (laughs) in some ways. And I find that fascinating. Is it curiosity? Is that the thing that's at the basis of everything you do? Yeah, I'm I'm always trying to surprise myself. So I did a piece of daily art every day for a year. I I used Procreate and made and painted and drew um, art, piece of art every day. And it's on Instagram and Twitter or on my website, if you look at them, it's like there's no style, no theme. I would try and surprise myself. So I would sit down and like, I would have literally no idea what I'm going to draw today. And then I would like try and get an idea. And I would be like, how different, how, how I want to surprise myself with something that I didn't know I had in me. And I, so my projects are a little bit like that too, where I guess I do have a fear of repeating myself, but I, but that's really mild. It's more of understanding that there's so much to explore and trying to use each opportunity to draw as an opportunity to learn. So I, I'd say, I'm going to, oh, maybe today, oh, I have this idea of a map. I'll try to make maps. I don't know much about maps. Let me, so I'm going to learn, you know, I'm going to be learning about how to make a map as I try to make a map. And so uh, that's why I'm a total addict for YouTube because I'm just, this is the learning machine. So my art for me is learning about the world, learning about myself. And I try to keep moving in different kinds of projects to max- maximize and optimize my learning. And it's interesting, given your different projects, and as I said, I've been following your work really so since 2006, 2008, we're around the Thousand True Fans post, and I've always been like, wow, that's a completely different project. And if, in this author community, a lot of the listeners, we do have to kind of please certain people and you've got these books but it, one of the tips in the book is if you can avoid seeking the approval of others your yeah. power is limitless and yes. I read it and I was like well that's great but as authors we need approval from agents editors publishers readers critics so how do we put that need for approval aside to just create these things that we want to create yeah it's a weird balancing act this this work particularly the work of authors, but work of artists and creators, which is a really weird balancing act between ignoring what everybody else says and paying very close attention to what everybody else says. The reason why we have people in our lives, family, friends, customers, readers, clients, colleagues, is to help us see who we're becoming before we are, to help us to see who we are, because it's impossible for us to do this journey alone. As I said, we are just so opaque to ourselves. We need others around us, including like readers and publishers to help us see, to understand, because we cannot understand ourselves by ourselves. It's just a, there's a little kind of recursive loop that you get caught up in unless, but you need that outside perspective all the time, but we don't need, we don't want it to be binding to imprison us, to prevent us from moving or progressing and so it's so there's this weird thing I, I think i said somewhere else in the book that you need three things to really create something really great which is the ability to never give up and secondly the ability to give up when it's time to give up and move on and then your friends and family around you to help you discern the difference between those two modes and so there is this sort of inherent paradox in in creating where you want to use the feedback and the signals you're getting from readers or publishers. At the same time, you have to be willing to ignore the, those at certain times. And that it's that 
art of making that those compromises and you're not always going to get it right. And that's again, another piece of advice about why if you're going to be creative, you have to do it iteratively. You have to do it on an ongoing basis. You have to do it lots of times because you're not going to get that mix right. Sometimes you're going to be incorrect and wrong about ignoring the, what people say. And other times you're going to be wrong by ignoring by paying attention to what they're saying. So that's the value of professionals and others who do this on an ongoing basis because you you can keep trying and over time you'll get that balance correct. Yeah, it's really hard. I guess it's seeking the approval after you've already made it as opposed to during the making of it. I think you put it very, very well. So yeah, while you're making it, you don't want that editor or anybody around judgment and then once you made it you may abandon it as well which is fine because that's part of the process and at that point yeah you don't care but there's another bit of advice too which was when something when someone is telling you that something is wrong they're usually right but when they're telling you how to fix it they're usually wrong (laughs) unless they're an editor of course (laughs) (laughs) well yes i have a maxim to myself which is the editor is always right. And I believe that both as an editor and as a writer is, is that I generally will follow the advice of the editor. Very rarely will I just insist to push back. But generally, my default mode is the editor is right because I value that outside perspective. And you want to find someone you trust, but... Um, they can be incredibly helpful. And of course, while I was editing, I believe the editor was right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think it, it is about finding people who you trust to, to listen to, which I love. But I want to move on to the sort of AI stuff that's going on, because you actually wrote a piece in the last Wired magazine about generative AI, and you're now posting AI-generated art on yeah. Instagram and Twitter, and I've got you on my feed, so I have a look at that. And one of your um, pieces of advice is don't bother fighting the old just build the new, which I thought was great. So what are you enjoying about this AI generative art phase in technology? Well, partly I'm exploring. And if anybody sees the feed, they'll see like every day, it's like, I'm again, I'm trying to surprise myself. It's like, I'm just trying to do something weird and different and take advantage of the fact that my drawing skills are very limited. And here's this machine that can do tremendous drawing. And so What can I do if I've been able to amplify my abilities to render things? And so it's mostly exploring to see what is capable. I get a pleasure out of the images. And this was one of the things I kind of realized working on MidJourney or something, is that most of the images being created have an audience of one. Mm. It's like having your own little museum and you're just seeing the beauty of these images is like, wow, I just really enjoyed it. And that's simply just to see them. I may never, no one else may ever see these again, but that's the genius of this thing is doesn't matter. But I just get the pleasure of seeing these cool images and they do take time to generate. And they almost take as much time as if I was really good drawing and I was drawing them. To get a really good one, it's you can get um, any image instantly within seconds, but to get a really, really good one that you are just kind of want to stare at and look at and enjoy will take up to half an hour. And so I'm learning, I mean, into that process of it's a little bit like photography. You know, the painters in the 1800s were very concerned about the photographers because they said all you do is push the button. Well, anybody who's a photographer knows that photography is not just pushing the button. There's a whole lot of other things that go on to make a really great photograph. And that's the same thing we're finding about the AI art. It's not just clicking. It's like a photographer. You're kind of hunting for things. You're moving through this latent space of possible images, hunting for things and looking and kind of setting it up. And you've got your bird blind and you're kind of waiting there to see what comes up. And then so there's this engagement that's... And this, this sense of hunting for these things and discovering them and kind of co-creating them, that's that I enjoy as well. And that process of, okay, just 
just one more. I think I think I'm getting close. Wait, it's almost there. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, I gotta shift over. So, so there is so the process of the creative process is at work as well. And I just enjoy discovering these things and kind of finding a little corner that nobody has ever been to before. And that's the thing. You make these little world and you're there and you're kind of discovering what's in this world. And there's never going to be anybody go back to that because it's almost impossible to get there again. And that's kind of fun. Yeah. And I mean, I've been having a lot of fun on mid journey as well, but like you said, you're a photographer. I mean, I do take photos, but I don't consider visual art to be a medium where I'm any kind of expert, but a lot of people listening, I mean, we now have obviously chat GPT has gone mainstream, but we also use tools like pseudo write and there are tools for writing as well. So what are your thoughts? And obviously this is the beginning. This feels like day one for this kind. And you also say that the future is decided by optimists. So I like your positive spin, but are there reasons for optimism for writers with this kind of generative AI? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just really great. I think right now the current framing for these chatbots, and we'll call these maybe um, image bots, right? The mid-journey and Dali and stable diffusion. So they're image bots and chatbots. So these bots, right now, the best way to think of them as the universal intern, they're interns. They're capable of doing a lot of stuff. But you need to check the work. You can't release it by themselves. It's like, it's embarrassing. And people will see it. And they'll know what we will begin to notice. Already people are becoming very sensitive to, to say, well, that's an AI-generated image I can just tell. And also, again, going back to the prose and the writing is there is, um, if, you don't, if you don't push the bots, they're going to generate something very, very bland and middle of the road. It's kind of the wisdom of the crowd intelligence. It's based on the average of humans. And so they tend to predict what the next average human, the next word an average human would say. It's remarkable and it's useful. And that's the point is that a lot of this stuff is useful. Summaries, research, suggesting the details of a scene, generating names, maybe a punchline. It's all really great stuff, but it's like the intern doing work, you still need to add your voice, your angle. The bots have problems with continuity. They have very short attention spans. They can do the scene okay, maybe, but anything longer, they don't have a really, they have kind of dream logic at work. So there's currently just lots and tons of problems that even though on first draft is kind of amazing, it's the intern's report. It's the intern's help. And I mean, I'm using it all the time, and I have tons of friends who are using these in many different ways as interns. And so, like, they're saying, okay, intern, give me some headlines for this blog post. And the intern will give a bunch of headlines, and there'll be one kind of pretty good. I'll just tweak it a little bit. All right. So, that becomes sort of a habit where you're giving the intern all kinds of stuff, and maybe they're making a first draft that has some points or Vice versa, you're doing your first draft and sending to them to proof. I've had, I know some friends who are putting scripts in and saying, where are the plot point weaknesses in this? And it's like having another pair of eyes, another brain working with you. They will get better, but we will get better at working with them. And I see this as a partnership, a tremendous. Some of these might get big enough that you feel like you have a co-writer, which is great. And so what we're going to be able to do is actually make more, uh, the the best human written stuff will get slightly better. And a lot of stuff will be written where there is nothing writing right now. And so that's good. It's like the images. A lot of the images are being generated for where, where there is no art being made. It's where they're already blank. I'm using a lot to make pictures for my PowerPoint presentations, or I have my assistant does her dreams and she, every day she has the, create a dream for her newsletter. And there was no images before. So now there are images. And that's sort of one of the things we're going to do is is we're going to have better writing where there was no writing at all. And some of the best can be a little bit better. And I think there's no evidence anybody's going to lose their job. It's just, that's, there's just simply no evidence that anybody has lost their job to AI so far. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because creation for the sake of creation, which we've talked about and making our art, 
But it's interesting, given that you wrote A Thousand True Fans back in sort of 2006, whenever it was, and it feels to me like we're back there again, especially with the mass amount of content that will be created now with generative AI, is that in order to make a living this way, in order for me as an author to make a living as an author, I still need to come back to my Thousand True Fans. So has that post been true for the last 15 years or do you think things have changed so just to maybe rehash it for those who may not be familiar with it the idea is is that if you as a creator and you could be a writer but you could be a photographer or sculptor songwriter anybody who's creative and you're kind of individual and that with the new technologies which have since come along since I wrote it, first wrote it, like crowdfunding, Kickstarter, Patreon, all those kinds of things, and other tools that if you, with this new technology, you could have direct engagement with your audience. And that if they were true fans and could give you a certain amount of money per year and you got all the money, you got to keep it all, you didn't have to share it with a label or a publisher or studio, then you need far less in uh, of an audience in size. You didn't need a million people. You didn't need 100,000. You need something in the thousands would be able to give you a living. If you, if you could get your fans to pay you $100 and you had 1,000 true fans and they were true, crazy, loved everything you did, bought everything you made ever, the hard cover, the soft cover, the audible version of it, and you can get $100 directly, then with 1,000, you have $100,000. And that's that was the theory when I first proposed it, there was really nobody doing it at the time, but these new tools have come along and there's tons and tons of people who have a livelihood, a living, not a fortune, but a living with fans in the thousands. And I think the, the technology has continued to make that better, easier, broader, and social media has helped that process because the idea is that if you only need a thousand true fans, and let's say your interests or your niche is one in a million, only one in a million people are going to find the same passion and fascination that you have with some weird thing. Maybe it's um, you write crime novels for left-handed skateboarders, you're making something up. And so <laughs> there's one in a million people who really are into that. And then, but but with several billion people. That's a thousand. That's a thousand potential people in the world who are going to love your stuff. And so the hurdle, the challenge becomes matchmaking, finding them, having you find them and having them find you. And that's where the social media has helped in that process. And we're still inventing other tools for of discovery so that you can find that those thousand true fans and they can find you. Um, having said all that, what we also understand is that this option is not for everybody. It's not, it's a full-time job or it's a half-time job. I mean, it's like, there's a lot of work tending fans and true fans. And a lot of creators don't want to, don't want, they just want to write or they just want to paint and they, or they want to photograph. They don't want to um, tend fans on social media. And so, all right, well then they, would employ publishers and editors and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. So it's just an option. And there are people who shouldn't be doing this. They're just not cut out. They don't have the personality to interact with fans. And so we have other options. I've always said that this is just a possibility. It's a good place to start. Also, by the way, lots of people will start this way, get going and realize, hmm, this is really not what I want to do. And I now have enough visibility, whatever, that I can transition into something with a more of an institutional process. And that's a perfectly fine path as well. So I think the tools continue to make this option more viable, a better choice, particularly for those who are beginning, and something that um, can serve more people around the world. Mm, brilliant. You mentioned possibilities, and certainly I've found that your work has expanded my possibilities over the years. So we're out of time. Where can people find you and your books online? Thank you for that. My website's my initials, kk.org. Uh, and I'm on the socials, I'm Kevin number two Kelly, Kevin two Kelly. 
Um, some of my books are actually posted for free. My first book is completely online. Actually, my first and second books are there. And I have a newsletter every week called Recommendo, where we recommend six cool things, all kinds of stuff to read, to watch, to go to, to use. It's free called Recommendo. So, yeah, I'm still producing stuff, working on a next project about a desirable 100-year future, a world of high-tech that I want to live in, and maybe other people do too. So that's my optimism at work. Oh, I'm Uh, looking forward to that one. (laughs) uh, And right now, this book will come out in May, Excellent Advice for Living. There's about 450 of them, and they're kind of little tiny tweetable things, as you could hear, but they're short. I wrote them for myself primarily at first because I like to have little things I can repeat to myself to remind me. And I'll take a whole book of advice and try to reduce it down to a single sentence. Like I'm just opening up the book at random right here. It says, work to become, not to acquire. I keep reminding myself that, right? You don't want more things. I want to become something. That's, that's what I'm aiming to be. So yeah, I had fun writing it. This is the advice is really for anybody young or young at heart and hope you enjoy it. Oh, well, thanks so much, Kevin. That was great. So I hope you found the discussion with Kevin interesting and that it gave you some insight into a life driven by curiosity and making new things can meander through various creative projects in a wonderful way. And I love how Kevin has so many interests and follows each into new things. We didn't even discuss everything else he does. And I'm also someone who cannot just focus on one thing. Like Kevin's photo book, like I want to do a photo book at some point around Gothic European cathedrals. I don't think I've even mentioned this before. If you're if you follow me on Instagram or my Facebook page, you will know how many pictures of cathedrals I share. I am pretty addicted to Gothic cathedrals. I have loads of books on Gothic architecture. And I mean, seriously, what the heck? <laughs> I mean, that's why. But I have some ideas about how I could weave that into a Kickstarter project, of course. Um, but yes, I love talking to Kevin. He's very wise. So go get his book. Okay, so I have a few AI episodes coming up. Wanted to give you a bit of a heads up and also to know what's coming after that because I know some of you don't stick around for those. First of all, my AI-assisted artisan author solo in between episode should be coming out uh, this Friday. I, I, it's taking a lot more time than I expected because I need to get it right. Then a discussion with Michael Anderley from 20 Books and Dan Wood from Draft to Digital. And we're going to discuss Michael's goal of the 10,000 books a year and also with Dan Wood, how these things might get published and what the impact uh, might be. And then an interview with Stephen March, whose book, Death of an Author, is coming out from Malcolm Gladwell's press, um, Pushkin. Now, Stephen is a literary fiction author, and the book is 95% written with AI. And so lots coming up on AI, and I'll be talking with Stephen about redefining ourselves as authors. Is it the output of specific words or is it the ideas behind it, the finessing, the editing and all that kind of thing? So don't worry, I have other things coming too. Mental Health Awareness Week is coming up. So I'm going to be doing an episode on mental health for writers, um, which if you have read my book Pilgrimage, uh, which is actually out this today as this show goes out. I should have mentioned that earlier. Uh, But yes, Pilgrimage is out everywhere and uh, has a lot about mental health, to be honest. And I'll also have episodes coming up on writing novels inspired by place, writing memoir and uh, much more as we head towards episode 700. So lots to look forward to. And in the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.